This is Writing Excuses, episode 33, 32, or one of those. Um, go, Howard. 15 minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. As I just proved. I'm, I'm, I'm Brandon. <laughs> it's really late. I'm, sorry. I'm Dan. I think. I'm Howard, and joining us is Patrick Rothfuss. Brandon, would you tell us about him? Patrick Rothfuss wrote this awesome book called Name of the Wind, which is like pretty much the biggest breakout fantasy book of the decade. Um, and he's uh, got a three-book deal on it, I think. He's, gonna, he's doing three books um, yep. for DA, um, and it's just an amazing book, just out in paperback. So everyone go buy it, because if you're wanting to break into science fiction and fantasy, you should be reading the people who are breaking in right now so that you can know what the editors are wanting. So there's, there's my plug. How'd that work, Pat? That was great. Uh, you'll get your check okay. as soon as we're right. done with this. All right. Um, we're going to talk about exposition, um, specifically how to go about writing your books so that you aren't just boring people. This is a problem in science fiction and fantasy, fantasy specifically, because we have what we call a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. um, we, we throw people into stories. And so I want to start um, with um, some bad, you know, some not do's. What do people do wrong when they're doing exposition, particularly at the beginning of a scene or the beginning of a book? I can't speak. Go for it, Pat. Um, one of the big crimes, I think, is either the essay, which uh -huh. I think yeah. we get from Tolkien. Right. It's like, now we're going to talk about math homes. Right. You know? It's interesting, but it's, it slows down the story. Right. The other one is when you're describing a character, there's a tendency to want to really give an impression of them, and so they give what I uh, consider, what I think of in my head, as the police artist sketch. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they say, how tall, how fat, the color of the hair and eyes. And right. it goes on for 50 details for like half a page, but nobody can soak up that much information. I, I hold myself to three good, good details about right. a character, because that's all you really need to really can give an impression of them. Yeah. Even, um, you know, I, I talk a lot about Robert Jordan because I'm working on a Robert Jordan book, um, but... People talk about a lot, a lot about how descriptive he was, but when I've been looking at it, he sticks to that. He's got a couple of details about a given character, and you remember that character by, their, by the details, those couple of details. Um, you know, another, another thing people do, when they, and I do this all the time, my writing group is constantly bagging on me for it, um, is kind of the thesis statement. Uh, when, when you're writing an essay or a research paper, you're taught, say what you're going to say, and then you say it, and then at the end you say what you said. And that works in essays, it does not work in fiction. And yeah. a lot of books, you'll read them and this chapter will start with a thesis statement. Yeah. And then you'll go in and you'll actually get the real stuff that's going on. Yeah. You don't need that. Just cut out the thesis and go straight into the telling. Right. The showing, I mean. I, I tend to see that as well a lot. And, and it's really unfortunate because dialogue moves things along quickly. Yeah. At least in terms of the reader's perception, if not the yeah. page count. But uh, what breaks my heart is when you get some good dialogue and then a glimpse into the person's head where they think the exact yeah. same thing you that know, they just said. Here's mm -hmm. the thing, I do that, and I'm mm -hmm. trying to cut it out of my writing, but it's something I've noticed that I do just instinctively is I, I will, yeah, you'll re repeat yourself. Repetition, I think, you know, we're getting into stuff that's really hard to figure, learn to do. It's yeah. like a lifelong goal of most authors to learn how to show rather than tell. And mm -hmm. it's really, really tough. Um, the things I want to mostly focus this podcast on is we'll, we'll there, there are all sorts of ways we, places we could go this, but specifically for the new writers, I think that a lot of new writers have trouble with these exposition moments, particularly when they start a book. 
Um, they have the, the David Edding syndrome, I think, sometimes. Which is, um, I love David Edding's books, um, and he got away with this because he made it work, but you can't really, I, don't, I haven't seen anyone else do it, which is the, we're going to start with the lore of the world and give you the mythology for like 10 pages, and then we're actually going to start your book. And um, people seem to want to start with this wide angle shot that you could do in a movie, <laughs> this big shot, and they'll describe everything. And then, you know, 20 pages later, we finally get to the character who's milking a cow or something like that. <laughs> you know, I, I would say that the, the, the best advice I could give a new writer is don't for a minute think that your reader cares more about the setting than, than they the care characters. about the characters. Yeah. And, and then yeah. give them what they care about. The setting, for a lot of science fiction and fantasy authors, the setting is what you care about because you dreamt it up and it's this cool world you created and that's nice. Now let that be the canvas and don't show us the canvas without paint on it. Yeah. Yeah. In, in uh, my internal you know, measuring system, I tend to think if I'm showing five to 10% of the world that I've created, that's more than enough sometimes. I, I tend to build this huge world, but nobody wants to know about all these dead religions, and nobody wants to know about, well, yeah. that's not true. A few people yeah. want to, mm -hmm. but the question I always ask is, who cares? Right. Who cares? The only people who care are your characters, and you've written that backstory stuff, and it will inform those characters' decisions, but you don't need to come out and say that. I mean, the reader doesn't care. We, we had a, a few weeks ago, we had the, the folios on, um, and we talked about their, their webcomic, and one of the things I love about it is it just tosses you in. Yep. And I think fantasy readers expect that. They expect to be tossed in. You can give them credit for being smarter, perhaps, than you're trying to give them credit for being. As long as, as you're moving the story and the characters, they'll pick up the world as they're thrown into it. Absolutely. I also think you were talking about people wanting to start with the wide-angle yeah, shot. Yeah. I think it's just as effective. We get to know the world through the characters' yeah, yeah. interactions with the world. So I think it's... it's a narrow is better. Narrow, yeah. You start in with this narrow shot, and a, you know, that's how my book starts. Yeah. It's a couple old guys arguing about something in a bar. Right. Yeah. And a, an argument is a great way to replace exposition uh -huh. because then you see multiple viewpoints about this topic and you see that it's not just one way. Everyone in the world might have different opinions on you know, the nature of God right. or how the government is being run. Yeah, I always suggest to people, if you're having trouble with this, start with dialogue. Try and start with dialogue, or at least start with a scene of motion and action where you mm -hmm. don't let yourself describe a whole bunch. Yeah. You get into it later, but um, of course, I, I do want to say, Pat, you cheated uh -oh. um, because you went into first person. <laughs> I um, did. <laughs> and first person, I think, uh, I, wanted, I wanted to mention, I think you can get away with info dumps a lot better in first person. Um, yeah, you and, can. And in certain genres. I mean, in, in my Alcatraz books, which are Alcatraz. first person. Alcatraz. Yeah, I, I info dump all over the place. This week's Writing Excuses is brought to you by the latest Schlock Mercenary collection. Schlock Mercenary, The Terraport Wars, by me, Howard Taylor. Available for pre-order now at store.schlockmercenary.com. This edition of Schlock Mercenary Comics is prefaced with an introduction by my favorite new introduction writer, Brandon Sanderson. And it's $25, $35 if you want to pre-order a numbered sketch edition. Again, the URL is store.schlockmercenary.com. Um, and one thing, when I was thinking about this podcast um, and talking to, to Eric Stone about it, he, um, he suggested, you know, talk about the fact that you do have to sometimes. So 
how can you make, sometimes you have to exposit, sometimes you have to explain these things. How, what's the difference between a pro and an amateur when it comes to that? Well, I think, it, it, just to step in on the, uh, yeah. on the first person issue, sometimes it feels like you have an excuse to exposit yeah. with first person, but what you have to ask the question there is, who is that storyteller talking to? Yeah. Yeah. Because if that storyteller is talking to somebody else who lives in the world, they should never explain day-to-day -day things right. because that just makes no sense. We call it Maiden Butler dialogue when they do that. Absolutely. It, you know, yeah, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. You don't want people to be explaining to other people things that both of them already know. Exactly. It, mm -hmm. And it, it, it reeks of, of, of non-realism. Yeah. But in terms of how to pull off the exposition, yeah. I think with first person, the key is... Um, a passionate or somehow engaging narrator yeah. who is maybe like really viciously opinionated and maybe wrong right. about whatever that they're describing. Um, in, the, in some ways it's not so much what they're saying that's interesting, mm -hmm. it's how they talk about it that makes it interesting. Well, I mean, I, I think on this, um, Kurt Vonnegut, I believe, is the one who said, um, you want every sentence to be doing more than one thing. And that's the problem when we hit expositions. A lot of time, it's doing only one thing. To do it well, like a pro, you're looking at this exposition and having it do multiple things. Pratchett, great example. Exposition all over the place. It works fantastically. Why? Because you're laughing. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's explaining and you're laughing. Well, and another thing that exposition can also be doing is character. That's why it's so yeah. good to use dialogue and first-person narrators because you can reveal your information and at the same time reveal something about the person who's revealing the information. When we yeah. talked about uh, third person limited and when we talked about um, uh, character voice, uh, you know, combining those two principles and saying, yeah. well, I'm switching into this person's head, yeah. I'm going to look at what this person is interested in, and because of this person's backstory, you know, which whatever has informed yeah. it, they're going to notice things that other people aren't noticing, and it's going to be something that's important to the story, and that's why I switched to this character. If you look at the masters of viewpoint in third person, people like Jordan and Martin and th people like this, each character is saying something about the world and about themselves simply by the way that they are giving you exposition, and that's what makes them work, I think. Um, there's very few examples uh, of this way of doing it. I've seen a few first-person stories that uh -huh. do switch characters. Yeah. And it's so hard to pull off yeah. well, uh, but I have to say The Innkeeper's Song by Peter S. Beagle, okay. yeah. it's great because not only do you get the distinctive voices and the distinctive points of view, but you actually get the different views of the world chapter by chapter as it switches. And they are so distinct that you're never, you're never confused about who is telling you this piece of the story. It's sort of a best of both worlds thing. I don't know if I would ever dare to try that style. Yeah. I don't know if I'm good enough for that. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, and I've, I've heard other people say it before, that how tough it is. Um, how, about, how about we change tracks just a little bit here? Um, in fantasy and science fiction, I've mentioned the, um, the, the learning curve, right? It's really hard when you just start off to figure out what's going on. Um, how do you decide where that balance is? How much are you going to explain up front? How much do you worry sometimes that you're throwing people into too much? I mean, you bookended yours with, um, with the third person piece. So you could, you could kind of ease us in and then start on quotes, story. Um, did you decide that to make it easier for the reader or why did you do that? Um, in some ways I did it so that you knew 
who Quoth was telling his story mm-hmm. to. Um, if he was telling this to a friend, he would not have a reason to explain some of the things that he needs to explain uh-huh. in order for the, the, us as the reader to get that information. But since he's recording this kind of as the history of these, these important series of events, he has an excuse to give some of this information as he sees it, as, as an authority. Okay. Um, that's part of the reason I brought that third person in. Um, and then sometimes I escape back into third person to, uh, you know, from the first person narrative, it, it emerges back out. And then sometimes they can comment on the right. story itself, yeah. which allows for exposition that Quoth himself would never give mm-hmm. um, because he would never talk about things like that because everyone yeah. would already know it. So, Howard, you do a pretty good job of this, I think, also in, in Sherlock Mercenary. A good balance between when you are I- explaining what's going on and when you don't. There are a lot of things that I've never had explained to me about, about the Sherlock Mercenary world, and you never explain them, but you pick them up as you go. Why, I mean, do you worry about putting readers off, or how did you decide that you weren't going to be explaining these things? How do you decide what to explain? <laughs> it wasn't funny, and I have to make a punchline every four <laughs> panels, and... By golly, if it doesn't support the joke, it doesn't make it into the strip. Okay. I mean, that's not entirely true, but mm-hmm. uh, there are some things that were fun to explain. There are some things where I realized, you know, I don't need to describe the mechanics of a handgun, uh, even though this particular handgun has some interesting mechanics. I, I shouldn't use that as an example because I did explain the mechanics of that <laughs> in one strip, but I did it as I did it as like an encyclopedia page, yeah. which, which was fun to do. But for the most part. I throw these things in and just expect the reader to catch up because what's important is the characters. Yeah. Well, and I've said, I think um, sci-fi fantasy readers, one of the reasons why, why we read this genre is to be stretched in these ways. To, it, it doesn't feel like full immersion if we get our hands held. Well, and you, uh, you, said, at the, you said at the beginning, we want to be thrown into the story. Yeah. And if you start by giving somebody an info dump and an encyclopedia entry, yeah. I'm not thrown into the story. I'm yeah. thrown out of the story because I'm now reading your Wikipedia page. <laughs> right. and I see a lot of webcomics do the same, that have that same problem. When I go to a new webcomic and try to read it, the first um, like five or six strips are them, people explaining what the webcomic is going to be about, and I mm-hmm. stop reading. And most who the characters are. are falling into the same trap that most yeah. amateur writers are falling mm-hmm. into, and they're falling into it because they are amateurs. Yeah. It's a common problem. I, yeah. in, in, in my opinion, uh, one of the things that you can actually get is you need to build the world. You need to know it as the writer. But then you can either give it all to the reader, and, and they'll choke on it, and they'll get yeah. sick of it, with a few rare exceptions. I actually think you can serve a much better purpose. You give them a little, you yeah. tease them, and then you withhold. The more you withhold, the more secrets you have. Then mm. the reader is curious, and engaging the reader's curiosity is so key. It draws them into the story, and then when you give them the exposition, they're so glad to get it. Yeah. They're like, oh, finally, now I get to mm-hmm. find out. Yeah. And then it's a payoff. It's not a burden at the beginning right. of the story. I've had the experience, the very helpful experience, of watching my readers discuss the story on the forums <laughs> as it unfolds. And every so often somebody will say, okay, this makes no sense. That character totally should not have done that. They would have been doing it this way. And somebody else will come in. I never wade into those discussions and explain because that means I failed. Right, yeah. Somebody else will come in and say, 
weren't you paying attention when this happened? This is why that's happening. Or better yet, well, obviously that's happening because it has to happen and we have to wait and see what unfolds. Yeah. And often I will read that and say, oh yeah, you're right. I'd better make sure I explain that <laughs> before we forgot that I glossed over it. Dan, you had something you wanted to say. I was just going to say, in, in light of what uh, Pat had said, one of the themes that keeps coming up in this podcast is take one thing that's unimportant and explain the heck out of it. Take something very important and don't explain it at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. let That's people deep. wonder. And it does create yeah. that sense of suspense. And then if you ever do give them any information, they're incredibly grateful for it's it. the third no, time yeah. you've said that. Yeah. And you've said it, it twice. No. <laughs> you said it last time. Did I ever say it? And um, you said it the first time. Well, I, I know. <laughs> I did want to mention one last thing kind of here. Um, one thing to remember is that all readers are different. Yeah. And mm -hmm. sometimes some things are going to work for some readers and don't for others. And sometimes, I mean... For some people, Steven Erickson is too tough because he, he really drop kicks you right in. Um, and for some people, that's hard. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I'm very conscious of this when I'm writing my books. I'm Mistborn. I intentionally, and I think I've mentioned this before, if you, you go and read um, the, the first chapter, I guess it's the prologue it ended up being, we have a, a scene where Kelsier goes and, um, and takes out this lord and, you know, just nails all of his guards and leaves them all for dead and saves somebody, and I don't show it because I've already hit you with too much world explanation, and I can't explain the magic system, and so I wait until chapter six, until we've had time to get used to the setting before I go into the magic system, because my magic systems require a lot of learning. Mm -hmm. And I'm conscious of this because I don't, I don't want to throw people in too much. Some authors do it differently. They want you to, they want to hit you, you know, they, you hit a brick wall in, uh, in chapter one, and if you get over that wall, you are in that club that understands. And then, then it's really special to you for that reason. But you know, I'm shooting for the, the larger audience. So anyway, um, Pat, any final words? Um, we've, I'm getting the cut signal from Howard, who's our acting Jordan. Um, I, I... <laughs> yeah, bad Sorry, things will happen to Howard now. Oh, the whipping boy. Yeah. Um, I, I think that you guys are just all so brilliant, and, and not just brilliant, but, but physically attractive to a degree which makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, and, and it makes me question my own sexuality. Okay, I was going to yeah. offer you that money back, but now I don't think that's taken right. <laughs> All right. Uh, any parting, parting words, guys? Um, see me afterwards, Patrick. <laughs> uh, uh, this has been Writing Excuses. Thanks for listening. Pod to the cast, biznachos. <laughs> If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.